The more we understand about wildlife, the less we seem to know. It's amazing to hear how those seeds get planted, where it, you know our passions start. And they said, why don't you come on up and help us at the store? We got a couple planes and a boat. We can fish and do all this crazy stuff. So we did. You know, I'd sit there for a few hours, and whether it was a, a weasel came by or a deer, and, and you just see things that you'd never see unless you spent three or four hours sitting motionless in the forest. And then I would show him my pictures, and he would just totally crush my dreams. I mean, he would look at these pictures and be like, nope. Welcome to Wild and Exposed your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. Today, Michael and I have traveled down the coast of Alaska, and we have arrived in Seward, Alaska, and it's my first time here, and it is beautiful, stunningly beautiful. And I learned some things today on this trip, once we arrived in Seward, because I was wondering about the name, and I should have known this. (laughs) But Seward is the name of the man who bought... Alaska from the Russians for a whopping $7.2 million, which is astonishing nowadays when we think about that, but surely a big chunk of change back in the time. And they were even ridiculing this. this was he a senator or he was a state? He was a, uh, head of the Department of Interior, I believe. Okay, Department of Interior. And so he was being ridiculed. They're calling it Seward's folly that he bought this. And obviously now with 2020 hindsight, it was an epically awesome decision to, for him to make and any one of us with that kind of money would have jumped on it nowadays i don't have that myself of course but wished man this, this landscape alaska is an amazing place and and that's the name seward was generated from that and I didn't know that until about two hours ago we traveled down the coast today to reconnect with our longtime friend and wonderful nature photographer ron niebrugge and we are visiting with him to talk a bit about his photography and his experiences and his life in Alaska and elsewhere, perhaps. And so welcome, Ron. Thank, thank you, Mark. You f- thank you for taking the time and thank joining, you, joining yeah. us today. Oh, I'm excited. Yeah, this is great. I have all kinds of questions. Good, good. <laughs> you, you were probably more of an expert on Alaska than a lot of people. Well, I don't know that, but uh, I guess just by default, I've lived here since 76 in Alaska. So, you know, just uh, even if I didn't try, I guess you'd pick up a few tidbits here and there. Right, right. How did you uh, get into photography? Was it just because you were in such a beautiful place? or You know, I was always into photography. Even as a young kid, I remember my mom taking a photography class, and I was picking her brain. I had a little manual focus, manual everything, Minolta, and I would shoot slide film. And then in 76, we took the trip to Alaska when we ultimately ended up staying here. So I really started getting into it then. But I've really had a passion for photography my whole life. Mm-hmm. You know, really have. Mm-hmm. And uh, was it always wildlife or? Uh, wildlife and out, anything outdoors, pretty much. You know, wildlife has always been uh, probably a little bit of an extra passion, but anything outdoors has always drawn my attention. And when you guys first came up here, it was to Seward where you moved to it so originally? It wasn't. Actually, I came up as a youngster. It's always a good question to ask an Alaskan. How did you right. end up here? Right. They always have an interesting story. My parents, my dad ended up, he was an aerospace engineer in San Diego, of all things. He said, I'm, you know, I'm tired of the rat race and commute and California and all this kind of stuff. So we started looking around at other, other places to move. We looked at Gunnison and Durango, Colorado, Bend, Oregon. This was way back before those things were household names. But, uh, and we had friends that we did a lot of camping with in San Diego that had moved to Copper Center, Alaska, which is now Wrangell St. Elias National Park area. And they said, why don't you come on up? He had owned a chain of grocery stores in San Diego, sold them, and bought a grocery store in Copper Center. 
And they said, why don't you come on up and help us at the store? We got a couple planes and a boat. We can fish and do all this crazy stuff. So we did. And at the end of the summer, my family decided, hey, let's settle down in, in the Copper Basin. And my parents bought a restaurant, of all things. And my uh, my mom's an artist. She's a fairly well-known Alaskan artist. So I they, knew that. I was going to ask you about Okay. That. So they ended up kind of transitioning to making their living off of her. So that's how we ended up. So that I was in junior high back in those days, or pre-junior high. I was pretty young then. And then I had ended up leaving for college and grad school and then coming back to Alaska. I met my wife, Janine, and then came back to Alaska. So I think it's helpful for Alaskans to leave, even if it's just for college, because if you grow up here, you really don't appreciate it. It, uh, No kidding. Yeah. You you know, it's like kind of the, this is the new norm. And so you don't realize quite how special it is until you go somewhere else and go, wow, okay, this, you know, it's, uh, boy, the air is not quite as fresh and the mountain's not as big and... You know, everything's not quite as bold. Wildlife around every corner. Exactly. Of every kind of sort, yeah. Marine yeah. And, and terrestrial. So that's a quick, short version Well, that's of good. It. I think yeah. I think that's, I mean, because we could probably do a whole podcast just on your, yeah, you no, know, no. how you got from point A to point B. But <laughs> That's probably the most interesting part of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I think there. it's super cool. So my wife and I have been in Seward for the last 27 years. So we've been here a long time. Yeah, that is. Yeah. It's, well, so I can it's, see why. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. We're, and how did you choose it? You know, it's interesting. We had come, my, we borrowed a little van from my parents. We were, we had, we had come up to Alaska. I had decided I want to relocate up here uh, after grad school, and I met my wife, and we were up and living outside of Anchorage. And my parents loaned us a van, and we came on down here. In it was in September, uh, rainy, stormy, terrible weekend. We went down to Ray's restaurant, and we saw sea otters out the window, and <laughs> we were like the tourists we laugh at now. We went running out the running out the <laughs> door with our cameras, and uh, we spent the night in the van. And we're like, this is just an awesome place. We love it. We got to find a way to live here. And it was a few months later, a job at the vocational school opened up for teaching computer classes at, at the office occupations department. So I ended up getting that job, which has got us down here. And then kind of a- after a number of years, I switched jobs and then ended up becoming a f- uh, full-time photographer. So, uh, yeah, but I love Seward. You know, and as a photographer, and you guys know this, we really could live anywhere. You know, it's uh, as long as you have internet and Mail nowadays, service and phone, sure. you know, nowadays and right. probably for the last 15 years we could live mm-hmm. anywhere. Mm-hmm. So it's hard not to think about as you travel around, it's like, oh, would this be a place I could live? Mm-hmm. You know, and so far, with few exceptions, I, I, I haven't found any place I'd rather be. Jasper, Jasper's one. I don't think you're allowed to, to, to move there, especially it's as an American. My, it's on my radar. Is it? We've, we've talked seriously about Jasper, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's easier for him. He's, He's a Canadian. Canadian, yeah. Right? So, but I think even as a Canadian, this restrictive residency, right? Right. There's some legislation in place that has to be addressed. Okay. <laughs> and there are there are there are ways, and I've had discussions with with people there about that. Um, it's a matter of having uh, to purchase uh, renting like a condominium is fine. Anybody okay. can do that, but to purchase something requires uh, employment in that area, okay, or a business a mm. business front or something of that nature. So there are possibilities, but um, yeah, it's a great hub, a great center to access a lot of these wild places within a couple of days' drive. That's you know, right. Whether it's Yukon, Alaska, the coast of British Columbia, Yellowstone, mm-hmm. and so yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of places that. So it's appealing for those reasons, and just it's just uh, super. Uh, yeah, amazing. The, uh, yeah, the landscape <laughs> there and the, and and the, the wild. wildlife. But, you know, the concern there, and not to get off topic, too, is, mm-hmm. is the, the pine beetle. The, the lodgepole oh, pine forests there really? have been attacked and devastated to the point when you look at the mountainsides there now, unfortunately, it looks like it's an autumn scene because they're all rust-colored brown. Oh. So that 
personally, that's a concern um, because it's at some point that's going to have to ignite. And what does that look like afterwards, or what does it ha in, when it occurs too, right? So, unfortunately, that's an issue in Alberta right now in that area of Alberta. And I'm, thankfully, I'm not seeing any of that in Alaska. You know, there is, and we saw it okay. uh, outside of Anchorage flying down to Lake Clark National Park. And no there was kidding. an article in the paper not too long ago, I guess more north of Anchorage, the spruce bark beetle was pretty bad. And I hadn't seen any signs of it, but flying back in June, I was looking down, and there was vast stretches of just oh, no dead kidding. spruce. And I was kind of surprised because I don't remember that the year before. It can yeah, spread quickly. Either. Yeah. yeah. It can cover a surprising amount of, of ground. But yeah. I tend to like these... Uh, Gateway, the small towns that have a national park, right. basically. Sure. There's and, and Seward's one, Jasper's one, you know, Springdale or right. Moab or, you know, right. uh, what's uh, outside of Rocky Mountain National Park? Estes uh, Park. Estes Park. You know, some of my favorite right. towns are yeah. gateway towns into a national well, park. Well, they're yeah. a restricted <coughs> footprint, right? So mm -hmm. we know that they're not going to become too big or too busy, aside from tourist season, which is what, you know, makes mm -hmm. it viable for so many of the residents. But uh, Well, yeah, the problem, like in the lower 48, is... There's just so many people enjoying those places now. It's hard to live in a gateway city like that be or a town. Right. Just because the population, it just, what, quadruples in the Summer. summertime. Right. It could take and a half hour, hour to drive across Jackson Hole. Oh, totally. Yeah. That's you know, and I've been photographing elk in Rocky Mountain National Park, and it took me over two hours to get out of the park because there were so many people. I mean, it was just bumper to bumper in a national park. So wow. that's what's cool about Alaska is it yeah. gets you out of that and – you still have a lot of people, but it's just a much further destination, and you don't get as many. Relatively right. speaking, it's not even close. No. Right. Yeah. And, you, and here you can go in any direction and encounter wildlife, and, and there are mm -hmm. ways to access so much easier. I mean, with the float planes and various things up here, I mean, that's a big part of the lifestyle, right? Yeah, is, oh, is for a, sure. Is being able to fly to, to locations and the abundance of wilderness and wildlife. I mean, it's the balance is to my favor up here. Right, I, right. I, I love, love that ratio. So in these... National parks in the south, I mean, you've got these a few roads that transect them and, and uh, limited access that way, and then it gets bottlenecked like that, right? Whereas when you have this vast amount of wilderness like Alaska or the Yukon or northern British Columbia, then you can access wildlife and have the opportunity for experiences anywhere and not be restricted to that or get in these traffic jams. So I think that's part of the appeal as a wildlife photographer or nature photographer to these places. There's really unlimited direction you can go and still be successful. You're not limited to be on that roadside with... Mm -hmm. certain rules and then of course in those kinds of situations i avoid them oh i do too because i don't want to stand there with 20 or 100 other telephoto lenses it's just and not to knock any of those individual people that's not what it's about but it just is not that experience and coming away with the imagery that you hear all these shutters going off that's a, that's not the experience i seek i've always right. said i'd rather pursue a lesser photo opportunity with by myself than than mm. maybe a, a a better location with a ton of people. You know, it's uh, some of those vantage points, are, it's just incredible what's happened to them. Oxbow Bend, for example. And you look at some of those national parks, they get 2 million visitors a month. All of Alaska gets 2 million visitors a year. So spread out over the whole year, spread right. out over this, this, this land that basically is half the size of the U.S. And so it puts it in perspective. I mean, it's, it's a drip in the bucket compared to some of these popular parks. That's totally. A, that's a good stat to let our listeners know about. Yeah, I didn't realize that kind of. So I wanted to uh, take a step back just a second and ask. Yeah. Uh, so your website is, if you can tell us. So like, our photography website is wildnatureimages.com. Okay, and yeah. it is very impressive. And, well, and I want to say 
from one nature photographer to another that you have a wonderful eye for light and composition something that a lot of people nowadays don't take the time to do well and you knock it out of the park always have and you have wonderful imagery that i always enjoy seeing well gosh coming from you that's a that's one heck of a compliment i really appreciate them no you don't have to say that whatsoever (laughs) no seriously from the moment i met you and and became familiar with your work years ago Uh, I've um, always enjoyed it and always been impressed with your with your eye and your vision oh, and composition and you. reading the light. You oh, know. Thank you. Thank you very um, much, Mark. So I, I will take a step back to where we met. I want to yeah, just briefly sure. tell our listeners about that fun day. Yeah, yeah. For me, it was a lot of fun. It was, I think it was about six years ago, six I or seven. I was trying to decide, and I have a feeling it might be longer ago than we both realized. Six or seven. <laughs> I could go back and pull up some photos and tell okay, you exactly. So <laughs> my son, Andrew, was on this on this trip with, uh, with me, and he's now turning 21 and he would have been 13 I think is was was and he was 13 and 15 maybe his trips uh, to this area of Alaska that he accompanied me and so if it's yeah seven years ago let's just say seven that's a lucky number (laughs) so we met you in the back country and there was a group of bull caribou right and Mm -hmm. we'd spotted them and and stop me if I'm remembering any of this incorrectly but they were magnificent bulls Mm -hmm. and they were shedding velvet somewhere out of velvet it might have been a couple in velvet, but there's yep. six or seven. And we hiked with these caribou, um, and they didn't mind our company. Yep. And we went up this mountain. Yep. And what I remember, and what was impressive to me, was, you know, of course, the most impressive thing was hiking with and being able to photograph these caribou. Uh-huh. And we, we had a group of, of, I think it was five or six, six of us in total that were up that day and spent the day with these magnificent animals. But as we went up the mountain, this is one of these experiences that stuck with me because you'd look up at the caribou and they'd go over the ridge and it's like okay all right we can <laughs> we can get up there i can do that I, I can make it to the top of this ridge so we can get some more images of them and you get up there and it's like wait this is just another plateau <laughs> this is not the top and we were nowhere near the top each time you think it's way up there and we're, we're going to be on the top it's going to be magnificent which it was no matter what but it was a very memorable day because it just kept going up these steps up the mountain and we spent many hours, and uh, you know, that was before I was wearing the wool underlayers for for sweat wicking in my son. This was a funny part of the of our experience uh, at 13. He had a cotton T-shirt on and his backpack, and invincible young man. He's up there, and, and unfortunately, once you get up above the tree line where we arrived, there's this wind and no protection from it unless you get behind some rocks or something. And he broke into a sweat and got a chill, right? And so we had to deal with that. Or I did as his dad. As his dad. Like, I feel badly to this day. Sorry, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> and and the caribou were there. He had this chill, so I tucked him behind this big boulder and, and said, just stay there out of the wind see if you warm up. You know, and maybe 45 minutes passed and he wasn't warming up. And then it dawned on me, well, okay, you've got to take your T-shirt off. And he's like, no way, I'm cold. No, no strip down, man. Take that T-shirt off. So he took everything off and put on his his is that her layer again? And then uh, uh, Rick from Nebraska was another fellow who was on that trip. Yep, and I can't uh, remember hike. his last name. And then I think it was Cheryl Obermeyer. Yes, and she, Janine was with us as Jean, well. Yeah. Yes, it was a fantastic group of people yeah. to hike with that day with the caribou. And Rick was super generous. He had an extra fleece shell, and he, he lent it to Andrew. And then the rest of the hike was comfortable for him, and, and it was one of those epic adventures. As father and son, I was able to share, and that was the day that I had the pleasure of meeting you and Janine. And, and the images from that day were wonderful. Uh-huh. We, the light we had. and We had amazing light and amazing fall colors. And it was one of those things that just happened, you know, it just kept happening and happening and happening. And I think towards the end, they finally slowed down, kind of laid down for a bit, and we could kind of – 
join up with them and hang out. And I remember looking back, and our, our vehicles were just tiny specks way off in the valley floor. You know, we had gone miles and, and climbed quite far. And Those are the experiences that I love to have as a wildlife photographer, when you can get with those animals and spend enough time that you have, they're comfortable, you see their behavior, they even have little naps, you know, and you have the time to sit down. And if you're with people that you've just met, like that day, mm-hmm. you know, get to know them, have some conversations and... And uh, to share that with Andrew too, I mean, is is one of the actually one of the highlights is right for, for a parent for oh, me. You absolutely. Know. And, and your son was a wonderful young man. He was so enthusiastic, and it was just neat to watch it through his eyes too, and experience it through his eyes. It was fantastic. He he really enjoyed it. And that trip, I bought him a point and shoot. I think that's what he was using on that trip. And so the images weren't publishable kind of thing, you mm-hmm. know. But the the trip a few years later, I gave him a professional setup that I had as my backup rig to use. Okay. And. He, and that trip, I, I leaps and bounds. He knocked it out of the park. It's like, wow. why am I even here, Andrew? <laughs> <laughs> well, even on that first trip, yeah. the images he captured up here in the brain. Yes. You know, yeah. Oh, it was last fun. Life, right. You, you know. We had so much fun. There, I, there was another, it was either the day before or the day after that we, we were with those same caribou, Andrew and I, for a few hours. Uh-huh. And I think it was the day before because they were lower down in elevation. And the caribou were in this bowl and on the tundra, and the color was magnificent, and they all bedded down and were having a nap. And so we were maybe 60 or 70 yards away and sat down, we're eating blueberries, Andrew and I, and uh, he was having a great time. Uh-huh. And it was one of those one of those situations where he wasn't like, what are we doing next, where are we going? He just took it all in and was comfortable there. And, and we, had, yeah, I got some video of him doing some funny stuff as a young man there and just having yeah it's an amazing place to be it's nice to slow life down oh for sure you know in a situation like that and just observe the animals and then when they get up and do their thing a few hours later it's you have some more fun and I remember one of my, I was about his same age when we first moved to Alaska, or maybe a little bit younger, and my parents took a trip to Denali, took us along, and back then you could drive to Winter Lake and camp, and I remember we were taking a a bus, and I had my little Minolta, and I was probably like a 70 to 200 Zoom, that was, you know, everything was manual, and we stopped and got off the bus, and this was kind of neat, my parents, we hiked up to some sheep for a ways, passed some caribou, spooked some caribou, had this great experience, and then my parents let me go on up to try to get close to these sheep. And so I climbed up on these ridges, kind of a similar experience, but not nearly as as difficult as what we did with the caribou. But I got up there, and I got close, and I got these cool pictures, and it's this amazing experience I'll never forget, much like I would say probably for Andrew. And I remember thinking, wow, I'm really good at stalking wildlife. I got within, like, 25 yards of these sheep you know it's like maybe they have an aptitude for this and i sat down and just enjoying it and and over the next hour the sheep come within like five feet of me (laughs) i I had to accomplish absolutely nothing (laughs) it's not just the aptitude no you're a sheep whisperer (laughs) yeah you were you were accepted as part of the clan i know (laughs) those sheep in denali are pretty much you know pretty fearless of humans and uh, but it's still a magical experience just sitting there much like we did with the caribou and uh just having these magnificent animals so close it's you know one it it probably propelled me it was probably a catalyst for me to eventually get into it making it as a career and if you would have told the 11 or 12 year old ron back then that hey you're gonna make a living doing this and you'll be coming back to this park i would have probably would have blown my mind back then that that was even a reality you know but uh Anyway, that was a. Um, it's amazing to hear staying. how those seeds get planted. Yeah. Where it, you know our passions start. Yeah. Right, and and that kind of encounter does it. Uh huh. Absolutely. I mean, you probably both have stories. I'd be curious what, what if. I mean, that inspired you to do the same thing, not to not to take over the <laughs> podcast. No, no, hey, no. This is this is a round table. This yeah. is good. Um, I'd have to think about that. If there was one event, uh-huh. you know, do you? 
Do you? Have, I mean, I can. I was just. My dad always took me into the wilderness with him in Ontario, where where I grew up, and uh, I was just had encounters with wildlife. You know, I'd sit there for a few hours, and whether it was a a weasel came by or a deer, and, and you just see things mm-hmm. that you'd never see unless you spent three or four hours sitting motionless in the forest. Mm-hmm. And when you do, things go by, big or small, mm-hmm. and unpredictable, where, when. And that's kind of how I, I got the bug. And, uh, well, and it goes a little first. So then I started working for the DNR at 15 years old. So I had experiences mm-hmm. with in, in the field of, of wildlife, forestry, and fisheries for about six years. And... Um, that helped open my eyes that there's a possibility to work in natural resources. And I was doing a white-tailed deer research study for the DNR in university on um, a deer population. And then I met a professional wildlife photographer that summer. So I knew where all the deer were in this park. It was a pre-call study. They wanted to know what the population dynamics were and how they were using that ecosystem. And that was my job. But this this professional nature photographer said, hey, do you know where I can get good pictures of the deer? I'm like, do you remember well, who it is, who it was? Yeah, Robert McCall. Okay. And um, so I said, yeah. And I said, I have access to everywhere. And uh-huh. come along. We'll have some fun. And that's when the light bulb turned on. It's like, wait a minute. So if I continue on and, and become a wildlife researcher, which was my objective, uh-huh. then, you know, I might not get to study these charismatic megafauna with, <laughs> of moose and bears and wolves and deer and things, caribou, elk, things that... that I'm passionate about. I could end up working for the government and they could say, you know what, we want to know how many shrews live out there for the right. next year. And I'd be like, okay, well, I'm in the field, I'm outdoors, so that's good, I'm happy there. But really, do I have to go count shrews? <laughs> right. Do I have to? <laughs> so the light bulb turned on and the idea of, of being able to make a living at animal, nature, wildlife photography was like, is this for real? Uh-huh. And he's like, yeah. I'm like, okay. And so he became a, a wonderful friend, and we did a lot of trips together. My first trip to Denali was mm. was with him, and I always enjoyed his company, and he taught me a lot about the business. And I ended up at that time in my early 20s buying uh, used his equipment, his, you oh, know, wow. when his 400 5.6 was no longer of use for him because he got a 500, then I'd buy it, and, uh-huh. and it's, you slowly get better equipment and move, move on. And that's, that's and, I, and it was fortunate for me, and not, not to, this is, I want to talk about yeah. Ron here, not yeah, yeah, Mark. Yeah, no, that's good. No, um, <laughs> that's not, I, I can tell these stories to our <laughs> listeners <laughs> from my couch at home. But it was, uh, from that point forward, I didn't, you know, I was just perfect timing. I was yeah. very fortunate because I was young. I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have a family. And I could put all my time into wildlife photography. Just finished my degree. So there were no commitments to anchor me down. Uh-huh. And it's hard to get into the field that way because you have to build a portfolio. Right. So timing was a big part of it, and so I was very fortunate when that happened. So that's my short story. Stop there. <laughs> I had one other one, and I would like to hear Michael's response to that too, but I was uh, I was avid rafter, and a buddy of mine were both kind of into rafting quite a bit, and his dad was one of my school teachers in, in high school uh, in a small town that happens, and he wanted to check us out. So he said, well, I'll take you down to Golcana on a long raft trip, but I want to see how you guys handle the raft before I let you guys go on your own. And as we were rafting, we came around a corner, and there was an eagle's nest on a bluff kind of off to the side. And he just made an off-the-cuff comment about a National Geographic photographer would sit up there and spend all summer watching and photographing that nest. And it was the same thing. I'm like, wow, that would be so fun. And that's a thing. You could really do that. And I think of that two ways because that probably helped prompt me as well. But then I think 
what little thing did I say to somebody along the way that maybe prompts them to do something? You know what I mean? That school teacher has since passed on, probably had no idea that that had such an impact on my life. He probably, if I asked him today, he probably wouldn't even remember making that comment. And yet I remember it vividly. I could probably find in the bend in the river where he said it. And so I kind of remind myself now, you know, when I'm around young people or even uh, not even necessarily young people. And just, you know, you never know when your words might have an impact. Totally. You wouldn't know because it's so obscure to yourself. You, uh-huh. You're like, oh, I just said something. But to somebody else, it really really hits home and it's cool when you when you know that it actually when they can come back and say wow what you said really made a difference yeah yeah That's did you have a cool. moment like that michael or mine was very similar to yours i grew up in the mountains a little small town to the west of durango i don't even say it because most people don't even know it okay. but it's a little town called mancus okay and when you grow up there you just used to being in the woods that's what we all did for fun right you would either be out riding motorcycles or riding bikes or shooting guns or whatever it was all outside when it was time to go to school to college I wanted to be outside. I figured, okay, let's just get a job to get you outside. So I went and got a degree in biology. Coincidentally, along the way, I got a job with the National Park Service. When I got out of school, I started full-time with the Park Service. And my first job was to take this professional wildlife photographer into the backcountry of Mesa Verde National Park. Oh, no kidding. Very similar. Totally. Yeah. And he was, uh, so the backcountry of Mesa Verde National Park is closed to the public. Okay. So he had to have a chaperone with him. And that happened. I was a little man on totem pole, right? So I went and did it. And that's when it clicked and it's like, I can make a living at this. Right. This guy, his name was Judd Cooney. I was going to ask if you remember. Yeah. Yeah. He would take me out. I'd watch what he did. I would do the same thing with smaller, cheesier equipment. Right. Uh Then I would show him my pictures and he would just totally crush my dreams. I mean, he would look at these pictures and be like, nope. (laughs) No. (laughs) What did you take a picture? You can't even see the eye on this one or, you know, Uh just totally just like slamming it. But that was the best instruction I ever got. Right. Because, Uh As long as you could handle that rejection, right, or that those those comments that are just like nope, 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 it made me get better and better and better and finally figure it out. Uh huh. Oh, that's cool. So very similar. Yeah, when I think about it, over and it's something I've reflected on more in the past than than lately. But the number of professional nature or wildlife photographers that I know that studied photography, yeah. it's 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 very very few. Yeah. Most of the people yeah. are passionate about it, and in wildlife, it's more the background of animal behavior. Mm-hmm that kind of launches it in the passion of photography. So I, I want to encourage and motivate people, listeners, that you don't have to necessarily go study photography. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. sure it's beneficial, but like most of the pros that I know are self-taught. Mm-hmm. But I would say having a degree in biology has helps me more than having right. because I understand what's going to go on. or, or mm-hmm. I don't can't say I always understand, but yep. you kind of have a better idea of, oh, well, this probably is going to happen because they're doing this. Yep. And whereas someone that studied photography... They know how to run the camera, but they're not sure about behavior and right. things like right. that. That helps. The only person that I can uh, think of is Barrett. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Barrett went to school for photography. He did. Right. And he's the one person that's just like, I'm going to go do this as a wildlife person. Wow. I could think of a couple, not offhand, but I could right. think of far more that either had a biology background or a park service. There's a lot of them that had park service backgrounds mm-hmm. that became photographers. So, Ron, I saw on your website. Yeah. Segue into that a little bit here. Yeah. That you have a page of published covers, oh, and wow. why I want to direct our listeners to that because they can <laughs> quickly see the breadth of your impressive portfolio. Oh, but thanks. you know, one of the covers was that I saw there quickly was National Geographic Adventure magazine, uh-huh. right? So yeah. you you've done all kinds of things with a multitude of publications. You know, and uh, and for forever we made our living off of just stock, primarily like like you have, and so. You kind of are forced to shoot a wide variety, I think. Uh, yeah. And we would take these multiple 
we would take multiple two-month-long trips in the in the what we call the lower 48 in Alaska, the the states, and uh, it wouldn't be uncommon for us to hit a couple of national parks, maybe Jackson or you know uh, Grand Tetons or something. But it wouldn't also be uncommon for us to maybe hit uh, Vegas or you know some of these cities and do a little bit of photography as well. So, um, and I had a, a stock agency early on. Uh, it was Ken Graham Agency, and he said, boy, we love our land, your landscapes, but if you put a person in it, we would, they would be so much more marketable. So a lot of times we meet people for the first time, they joke, they, they recognize Janine, they've seen her backside standing <laughs> looking into a scene uh, at some, and uh, so she's on a lot of those covers probably, and uh, um, so that was great advice early on. So really I did shoot, I love wildlife, but I also love landscapes, I love travel, travel. I love yeah. some of the adventure stuff, and a lot of the travel stuff, so... I took a trip into San Antonio, ironically, when we were first really looking to get it going in this business. And I was meeting some buddies, and we watched some college basketball games. And then afterwards, Janine flew down and met us, and we, we took pictures of wildflowers in the, in the what do you call it, the, the hill country. Oh, the, yeah, yeah, the hill country. And uh, we came back, and I had pictures from San Antonio as well. And those pictures just sold and sold and sold. Um, desktop, what do you, where you're placemats and keychains and we saw and it kind of opened our eyes that hey if we traveled and we're open to a little broader bet you know coverage we could probably make a living doing this you know and if you think about it, a place like san antonio right. or las vegas not that many people visit those areas i mean i mean a lot not that many photographers visit those areas but a ton of people visit them right vegas is a prime example 39 million people a year visit vegas so for so long that was our number one selling subject ironically right 39 million are so many conferences There's and things you wouldn't even think of, like a dental conference. So you got somebody with a new dental product that needs to send out invites. So they might buy a picture of Vegas, you know, to the strip or to, whatever. Yeah, the yeah. strip. And, and same with the magazines and stuff. So, so you, you look at Alaska, where you have everyone who's a nature photographer comes to Alaska. And you don't really have near the demand for the photos. I mean, you do. There is demand just because a beautiful picture is a beautiful picture, and it's easy to get, you know, mountains and meadows and stuff in Alaska. But when you're talking site specific, mm-hmm. you know, a place like San Antonio or Vegas or San Diego sure. often has a lot more demand. So that was kind of, uh, kind of got us going early on, and was really mm-hmm. helpful in us mm-hmm. making our living, being right. willing to shoot. Right. You know, all these well, and I think places. it speaks to being a photographer in those days. It, there was no roadmap that yeah, said right. this is what you do. Right. You had to kind of just get yeah, where you you'd could follow, get it. You'd follow where the success led you, right? Uh, I yeah, mean, and if you could do some of these other yeah. things that would allow you to more time to go do this other stuff that you really liked. That's right. I was all over that. Anytime I could just shoot something that didn't that wasn't necessarily necessarily wildlife i still do that yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah and people would say to me how can you spend uh you know a week in vegas taking photos and it's like well you know a lot of people would ask me that would live in la or san francisco and it's like well for me a week of crazy people is is kind of fascinating i live over 100 miles to the nearest stoplight so right. to me it's it was different enough that i could i was fascinated by it right. now if i lived in la or san francisco i could see how you know, right, I'm like, right. this more craziness. More but, crazy. To yeah, some. so I can embrace it and get excited, and it's like, you know. Yeah, and I think five days in Vegas or seven days in yeah. Vegas is, is doable much more than that. Then you're going to go you're gonna, you're gonna yeah. go crazy. <laughs> so along with your website, too, uh-huh. in addition yeah. to those covers, then you also have your photo tours, too, right? Yeah, right. And is that a whole different site? So I mean, it is, and you know, it's interesting. You uh, Thanks for the compliments on the website, but it's like it's funny because we started that in the late 90s with front page and it was like four or five pages you know at the time i just had a couple lousy pictures and a full-time job and we thought we should have a website knew nothing about it so created this thing with front page and it's grown it's i don't know five thousand pages big now um 
but it's got a lot of handicaps because it really is built upon old technology. You obviously. can't really port that over and to somewhere very problem, easily, can you? You can't really port it and make it responsive for iPhones and things like that that weren't even on the horizon in the 90s. Right. Um, the thing that it really benefited for being a static website like that, uh, Google loved it. And, and it was early on and it was big and it was constantly growing. So we were number one for Las Vegas photos or California photos, all these different things. And that really helped propel us and be successful awesome. and, and get us to where we are now is, is I had spent a lot of time testing stuff on Google and figuring that all out. So forever I was afraid to even touch the structure or mess with it. And even to this day, you know, it still gets – I was just looking yesterday. I hadn't checked in a long time. It still gets 6,000 visitors a day or something like that and the blog another 2,000. So it still brings a lot of traffic just Keep because it, it is Google-friendly. Yeah. So as I started doing photo tours – and some of these other businesses, I realized that I better just do a standalone website because I'm at first I put it on there and it looked like an afterthought. It's like, okay, he's doing photo tours and selling stock, and what is this guy doing? So I thought it's just easier to build a separate photo tour website that's you know that's on WordPress based, easy to update, right? Uh, you can do it from your phone, do it from a phone, and so yeah. so I have a few different websites now. Well, and I think reason. everybody does. I I bet I have four or five websites i I think that's just how you operate yeah yeah i think it's probably smart yeah you know actually Mm -hmm. and you're able to differentiate and 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 then concentrate on a niche with one website you really can't you're you're everywhere you know and so i've got three but maybe i need like 50 (laughs) maybe we gotta have the moose website (laughs) the caribou website the deer website it's true though i think back in the day you'd see if i had trouble beating somebody for a specific subject right it was because they were just all about that subject like i could be number one for you know i might be number one for wolf photos but and caribou photos but not moose photos and i'd be like who's number one it's a guy that just his website's called moosephotos.com and he only did moose photos and and so there's a case you you could especially back in the day some of that's changed yeah but you could make a case for just having a website about one animal and uh, or one subject, but nowadays with with a portfolio that has some separation like that, it makes sense because it's so easy to engage with different website platforms yeah. and or set up a separate website, and they're fairly cost effective too. I started two with a company this year, and and they offered a deal because there were two. I didn't have to pay full price for the annual fee for. Mm-hmm. That's a whole other podcast conversation. I, yeah, yes. I was going to get into the custom built website, and that had tremendous appeal for a variety of reasons, but the cost for that was immense compared to anyway that's that's yeah. interesting stuff that we'll have to share with listeners okay. down the road Anymore. i think we should talk more about we need yeah, to, okay. the, photo adventures. Tours. the photo tours i want to hear about getting around in alaska i want to hear about some of his experiences his favorite right. animals to photograph right. flying okay. <laughs> where do we start let's start with the photo tours because okay. we were just there i mean i was looking on your website there's a Quite the variety. So I have a, four photo tours I typically do in Alaska. A couple of them are to a bear lodge that I've been going to for a very long time in Lake Clark National Park. Wonderful place. I know Michael's been. I see him there a couple times in the last couple of years. So. Right. And, and it's, uh, you know, it's interesting. It, it, a lot of photographers have gotten into photo tours as a way to diversify their business. And basically, because stock's going away. And I originally started because I thought it would be fun. And the very first time I went to this bear lodge, and I realized the value of a photo tour, because if you, as Janine and I were on our own, and we just got stuck with different day trippers who had very different interests, and they might be bored after a half hour and want to go back to the lodge. And so I thought, you know, photo tour makes sense here. You know, and I, hopefully I doubt she would be listening, but a lady was joined with us at the same time, and she was going, she was part of one photo tour and was going to join another. 
and she was extremely difficult to be around. <laughs> she knew everything about everything, you know, even though she was from California and right. spent very little time in Alaska. <laughs> and even at the time, I thought, you know what? I, I'm not cut out to be a photo tour leader. I, I couldn't be around manage somebody like that. this. Yeah, and manage all that. And, and I actually delayed starting the photo tour business for a couple of years because of that one, that experience. one experience. And, you know, to this day, I've never had anybody like that. I've, I've been blessed with amazing clients. And she was an outlier, and I didn't realize what an outlier she was. Now I, now I do. Right. Um, so right. it's too bad I didn't get started a little sooner, but it turns out I really enjoyed doing photo tours. So in the early years, I didn't do it for financial reasons because our stock was doing so well. I just did it because it's kind of a fun way to share Alaska. And I thought it would be neat to share Alaska with people. Uh, that, that I thought would be the most satisfying part of it. You know, what's funny, what's interesting is I found it meeting these people. I have met some amazing people. And that was a kind of a benefit that I didn't anticipate. And, you know, now many of them are friends and, I mean, close friends. And, you know, because you share these amazing experiences together. And so that's been a benefit uh, way greater than I ever anticipated. That's cool. So I still do that. And then I charter a yacht in southeast Alaska where basically I charter a nice yacht, repackage it, and sell off rooms, so to speak. And so we can, it's, it's a wonderful platform because we can talk. Everyone's together in the evening around the, you know, around the fire, the t- table, right. and we see whales and bears. So those are the four primary ones I do in Alaska. And then I've been doing some trips for some other people, uh, including Cheeseman's at ecology tours down to Antarctica where I'm driving Zodiac and doing different things, but they're not my tour specific. Right, right. Um, but uh, anyway, it's, it's, it's still a fun experience. And then the other thing, and I'll just touch on this kind of briefly, one of the things I found with doing some workshops in the lower 48, especially with national parks, is the rules are constantly changing. Or if you find a neat angle, like we would spend a lot of time in Anza Borrego, a desert state park in California that my wife and I both went to as kids. But, you know, you find a kind of a neat angle, and then a lot of people would copy you, or the rules would change, or the regulations change. You can't go here and there. So we, long story short, I started looking for lands where I could do my, create my own sort of national park, so to speak. Right. And I bought 10 acres in Arizona, remote, big saguaros. Uh, you guys, if you ever get down there, let me know. Big saguaros, big rocks. I'm on my way. Okay, good. <laughs> it's a great break from Ontario or Alaska right, uh, right. in January. But uh, and I've built some photo blinds, and this isn't a new business model. You see it in Texas. You see it overseas now. Right, right. But uh, it's 10 remote acres. We can put an RV on there. We have another little RV that people can stay at. And, and it's still a fairly new product, and, but the wildlife is just getting better and better. And I have a water feature going over the summer and, and an f- automatic feeder. So we were getting great. F- I mean, we get a lot of birds, which I like birds. But birds I really are cool. Love, I love the mammals even more. And we were getting, uh, we had two different kinds, two different bobcats. We were having two different species of skunks. We had a gray fox family that was regulars, javelinas. We'd get three different kinds of owls that come down to the water feature at night. Uh, um, we've seen wow. raccoon and coyote and deer. And so it's really, I think, for me, even just as a photographer, I love hanging out there taking pictures. Right. So I'm doing that as a little bit of a winter business to diversify. And, you know, what's interesting is Janine and I would spend all this time together. I did the photography. Janine ran the business side of things. But she loved traveling, even though she didn't do photography. Then I started doing these Antarctica trips and some of these other trips. And I was getting these amazing experiences. And Janine was left at home. Right. You know, so that's just a bad dy- dynamic. And and so with this business, we could do it together kind of like we did with the stock. So it's kind of a win-win for all of us. So that's, that's awesome. kind of where I'm at right now doing those. And still, we still do some stock, you know, of course, and some assignment work and kind of anywhere 
anywhere we can, you know. We, it's still there. You're an innovator, man. Well, I don't That's, know about that. Yeah, but, uh, no, it's a great <laughs> idea. And I've, I think I've seen this content on your Instagram feed. Oh, you have? Right. Yeah. So the birds and the desert stuff is all yeah. from that property. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. So where, it's, where do people see that? Can you tell them on called, Instagram? Uh, oh, yeah. It's called, uh, well, it's Kneebruggy. I don't have it s- set up as a separate Instagram account, and I probably should and will. Okay. All right. Uh, but on Instagram, it's just Kneebruggy. But the business is called Desert Photo Retreat. And oh, if you I see. put so that in Google, a there's a website, website ah, okay. and uh, all that kind of stuff and all the information on there. But, Desert uh, Photo Retreat. Desert Fo- yeah. Well, that has, a ring. That has a ring to it. Maybe we could do yeah. a podcast from there at some point. Yeah. That could be fun, huh? Seasonally appropriate. Around, yeah. Yes. <laughs> around a campfire in January. and <laughs> There's nothing better than leaving Seward in what? October? Yeah, yeah November sometimes. November? Yep. And then going. Yeah. Southern Arizona is not so bad. It's not so bad. I mean, I love winter. We both would love winter. Mm-hmm. Uh, we enjoy the skiing and all that kind of stuff. But it's two things. One, Alaska winters are awfully long. Right. And two, the winter here just isn't uh, the winter it used to be. It's more likely to be rain than snow. And, you know, it's kind of frustrating. Um, it's right. like if, if you're going to have winter, do it right. You right. Know, don't, sure. Don't rain. Right. <laughs> oh, it's interesting. You've noticed that then. Yeah. Over the past couple of decades, this shift. For sure. To, okay. Of course, since Seward was kind of right at the borderline anyway, okay. any storm could come through, could could snow or could rain. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's right. You know, so it probably is more obvious here. But even where I grew up, it doesn't get near as cold as it did back in the day. I mean, I mean, there was a time back in when I was in high school that they closed school if it got fifty below Fahrenheit, which right. is roughly fifty below Celsius. And school was closed so much that they changed it to 55 below. And you just, (laughs) which is kind of crazy to think back now. And I just, you don't see those, you don't see those temperatures anymore. No, no. Yeah. It's 35 below makes a big, is a big news story. Right. You know, so it's it's changed. Wow. You've got to cover your nose and fingertips in those temperatures. (laughs) Yeah, you know. Especially kids, right? Right. Yeah. Right. And and they wouldn't register it the same, you know. As adults, right? I'm, you know, yeah. they recognize the symptoms of hypo, or frostbite, frostbite. Sorry. and uh, children don't so much. So yeah, they have to be course, very careful in those days. In high school, too, you're, you're, right. you're way no too cool hat. to wear jackets and stuff. You right. know, or you'd wear no tennis shoes and no stuff and race out to your... Hat. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> you couldn't, Just rely on you the couldn't hair. be safe. We had more hair, but not, not yeah. enough to make that, make, <laughs> make that safe, yeah. Right. I can't imagine, oh, I don't want to wear a coat because that doesn't look good, but it's minus 50 below out. We'd still wear a coat, but it wouldn't be a big heavy weight. You know, might be a jacket or something and, and tennis crazy. shoes for sure you right. know my parents maybe have survival stuff in the vehicle because we were about 12 miles from school which is good oh smart right. yeah, you need but to, for boy, sure in the school bus would be that way you it you know it'd just be full kids that are totally unprepared if the bus ever broke down <laughs> right. oh, the good thing about that area is that if, if a car ever stopped on the side of the road nobody would ever drive by it right you know it, right you, you help is the next car away but right but still sure. yeah yeah I've, <laughs> I've always found alaska very friendly that way as well, and another dynamic thing that I'm I'm appreciating about Alaska, and, and I haven't spent the winter here, be, um, uh-huh. and the short day length in the right. winter is an issue. Not just the the weather. If it's a drizzly kind of winter, then that's no fun. But if it's really short day length, that's another issue for people. But this time of year is kind of exciting because yeah. being here for two days, <laughs> it's you know I we went to bed last night at about midnight. You know after yep. telling stories, and uh-huh. I could still see fine outside. Yeah. At midnight, and it's July twentieth, and we're not even at the solstice. Yeah, we're you're past a month, that month away, past it. Yeah, right? And, right. and daybreak where you can see would be that was before five a.m. You could see around four. Yeah. So how does the sun go so quickly around all the rest of the planet, but they stop over Alaska for so many hours? 
<laughs> it's exhausting. I can now, and now if you had clear skies, I, we used to turn our schedule around, and it was if you had good weather, it was easier to do. Just sleep all day, and, and yeah. just, we would get up at six. And you guys probably both done the same thing, and head out for the evening. And I remember coming back into Teclanica campground at nine in the morning or something, and people were cooking breakfast, and we would cook a little dinner and go to bed, you know. But, yeah. Uh, but the cool thing is, is too. you could just sleep wherever, wherever. Yep. too, right? Yeah. Along yep. the way, and if it was the middle of the day, you're like, yeah. It's Sleep yeah. for a couple of hours. Yeah. Yeah, long days, but beautiful, you know, beautiful. and, and it, it's uh, invigorating. I mean, yeah. you've got the, I like the clean air, the views, the sunshine, the long days, but, you know, you, you want to play hard. Yeah, you But, but well, a few days go problem. by. That's the problem. Yeah. And then it's like, well, I can't keep playing hard. I, well, and especially if you get these good cloudy days where you can shoot all day. Yeah. Yeah. Toast. You can go for 20 hours straight, no problem. And these are cloudy, and then this is a pretty light. This is probably going to burn off in the evening. You'll probably end up with a nice sunset. But I find myself almost looking forward to the shorter days where I don't have to stay up till midnight to just, just to catch sunset or right. get up at 3 for sunrise. And just as I get older, I'm like, gosh, that's, I, I'm looking forward to it setting at 8 you know, or right. 9. You right. Know? Well, and I, you know, the winter's not so bad. Sure. No, I mean, it's not. No, I'm just saying it's, I'm not really putting it down it's no, just no. such a difference such a contrast well, it is a difference. yeah contrast yeah. to summer i mean there's so much day length here it's it's what's interesting summer and winter because the sun is setting and rising at such a shallow angle like here in the winter time we can get some really dramatic sunrises doesn't happen a lot because we're surrounded by mountains but i can be sitting here and waiting for that sky to turn orange and go wow that's a pretty sun rise grab my camera gear grab my tripod warm up the car drive around a couple different places and shoot it because it's going to last for a half hour if not more right you know we're in arizona you better already be set up you better already have your location because that sunrise or sunset is going to be there and gone like that and Lickety it's split. messed me up a few times it's a, that's it heaven. i've always told people that about alaska uh -huh. the sunrises and sunsets last forever yeah and yep. you can you do have time to check out a couple spots yeah yep yeah, I remember the first time I, that, that same Texas trip I took, and I hadn't photographed in Texas and, or in the South, really, at long-time Alaskan. And I remember that. It's like, God, this is a beautiful sunrise. i got to find a cool barn or fence or windmill. Can we, you know, we're kind of driving around kind of with that mindset, and all of a sudden, oh, my God, it's over. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> whoops. <to them? laughs> I hadn't even <laughs> – yeah, whoops. So on the locations then, yeah. what is your favorite place in Alaska? Can you pinpoint that? Or oh, you know, do you have like so – there's so many. I mean, so I don't know many. that you That's can, right? so hard. I used to have a little page on my website. It's probably still there, my favorite spot. And I, was, and I used to call Pedersen Lagoon, which is in Kenai Fjords National Park, uh, out and around by Ayalik. And I probably would change that now. But it was a cool lagoon because you had a glacier that S down into this lagoon – dumped icebergs into it there was seals there was bears walking around you had the rainforest the the trip over there you're in Kenai Fjord so it's all the stuff I love about Alaska the coast and uh, I remember going over there and camping in the lagoon in a, in a buddy's boat one time and I think we counted 11 different black bears around on the shore walking around and stuff so that was one I would often mention unfortunately that glacier has now receded out of the lagoon and back quite a ways so you don't get the icebergs you don't get the seals and otters as much so it's and there's a lodge there the lodge is really well done it's they, they try to disguise it into the landscape the guy did a wonderful job but it's you know there's a, it's still not quite the same as it used to be i mean denali is you know and that's where i met michael which i, I you know it's kind of ironic it, everything circles back to denali that was my first great experience right. and where i met both of you guys you that's know right. and, that's where we met as well oh, is that right yeah, yeah. what's going on with this <laughs> yeah right <laughs> you know it's hard to be we we're talking about it off off mic you know denali has just 
Denali, can, you know, and I, and I talk to people that go to Denali sometimes, and you never know what their reaction is going to be. Because, frankly, Denali can be really slow. Yeah. I mean, I've driven into Eilson and back and seen one bear a mile away, or, or not even a bear, I think, on a, on a rare occasion. Or you might have a bear on a kill 10 feet off the road or something. I mean, it, it, she shares her amazing experiences, you know, slowly over time. Right. But yes. they're there, man. They're, they're, you're going to have some mind-blowing experiences, but you've got to work for them. Yep. You know, you've got to put your time in, which is yeah. kind of cool. It, uh yeah, it's rewarding. I've had friends come on trips with me. I usually take one person along, uh-huh. and uh, there have been days where nothing has happened. And it's like, oh, why are we here? This is such a long day, and you know, working hard all day, glassing uh-huh. and hiking and looking for wildlife and nothing. Uh-huh. You know, a day or two of that, and somebody new yeah. to that location can you know feel the weight of that lack of productivity. But then the next day, yeah, game changer, game right. changer, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And that's one reason I don't bring. I remember. Brennan and Kenan Ward and talking to him one time, and he had a, uh, a, a, a supplier or friend that I won't name the person, but who had always wanted to see Alaska and do it. And a couple of days in, he ended up taking them out and flying them back because, you know, he didn't want to put the time in. I think everybody thinks it's going to be, oh, drive on in there and find a wolf on a caribou kill, and it's <laughs> right. it's not that way. And it's right. like, I, uh, I, you know, I, you really have to have a like-minded, willing partner, you know, like, like Janine or, you know, to, to really f- – Get the most out of a Denali. You gotta, you gotta put your time in. Yeah, patience. But there's so much know. visual to enjoy there, even without the wildlife. So oh. if you're willing just to go for hikes along ridges and yeah. look at tracks and eat blueberries, yeah, you know, eventually something's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Just enjoy the space. You know, you've got to slow down. Yeah. And things, and and there, there's reward to that. That's right. That's right. right. And, and there are certain times where it's way better than others. There, there, there are just some sometimes. Yeah. I know you've had uh, some of my most. Exp- Amazing experience have been with wolves. And I know Michael's had some amazing right. wolf stuff as well, and I, I know you have too. But uh, and I yeah, used he's to like a moose caribou. Yeah, guy. I know he's no, a big he's he, the he, big he, antler. He'd have a moose he's on one side and a wolf on the other. He's gonna shoot the wolf, the, the moose. Yeah, yeah. no, no, I, I you love trophy animal guys. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love wolves, and wolves are one of the first animals to draw me into wilderness. I used to uh-huh. love as a teenager in my late teens finding rendezvous sites and howling, uh-huh. and that was I think the first or second date with my wife Pilly. I took her to near rendezvous site. At, at dark but there were these sand dunes and I howled and they came out to us oh, and, wow. and we just tucked into these cedar trees and their silhouettes were walking around us on the sand in the moonlight I love wolves okay <laughs> but but uh, I do love moose too yeah yeah so. <laughs> you love the big, the big antlers well, yeah, they're just, just, they're just gigantic it's like a yeah. prehistoric feel to a a magnificent 1800 pound oh. bull moose it's like where did you come from and how are you still here yeah you know it's amazing for sure so that's two it's two spots. Mm-hmm. What about you do polar bears too, right? Yeah. What about it, that spot? You know, it's uh, not, cold. It's cold for one. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a kind of a difficult environment. Uh, you're you're in a, a a small village. You know, where and where access is often restricted. You 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 know the there's just a lot of restrictions. It's not like you can just go on there on your own and have this amazing bear or wolf experience like you can maybe in Denali. There you, you're on a boat, most probably, or in a vehicle. You can't get out. You can't go on the shore. You know, so you're in a vehicle or a boat crammed with other people. Uh, so it's just not the – I mean, polar bears are amazing animals, don't get me wrong, and amazing to see. But the, 
the wildlife experience. I kind of think not quite to this extreme, but uh, a similar kind of comparison is Antelope Slot Canyon. You see these amazing pictures of this glowing, magical, you know, a spiritual place. And people look at that and go, wow, that must have been a, a fantastic experience. And it's like, no, it wasn't. There was 100 people behind me and guides were yelling at people to stay out of the frame and hurry, hurry, hurry. Now, you know, it was anything right. but a magical experience. Right. You know, so, I, you know, so the polar bear is not to that extent. But the, as a, just as a wildlife experience, it's not like being by yourself, just sitting there next to a big bowl of caribou and taking a nap or something. Yeah. You know, it's a not wanting to get too specific, but the, the polar bear experience you're talking about is in Alaska. Yeah. It okay. Is. All yeah. right. Yeah. I yeah. just know if you're referring to Manitoba or Alaska. No, and I've not. Okay. I've just done the Alaska okay. experience. Yeah. Okay. It's Kaktovik. It's a village. It's. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's, it's a magnificent animal. It's too bad the experience isn't doesn't right. rival. Have you been up there? No. Yeah. No. I want to ask about muskox. I've never done muskox. Ah. Have you had any experience with muskox? So, you know, this. I help a buddy out on a trip that we do these, where we go to Kaktovik, and basically it's a longer trip that we um, drive on a, on a van up into the Brooks Range and then to Prudhoe Bay and then fly to Kaktovik and back in reverse. Um, Hugh Rose is the one that puts these trips together. Really? Yeah. Hugh Rose? A, yeah. So I know Hugh. From oh, he used to be a bus driver in Denali. Oh, right. Boy, back in the day, he worked wow. out Camp Denali. So, so th- on those trips, on the way back, we typically allow some time for muskox. And there, that, that we don't have a ton of time, so they need to be relatively close to the road. But, they're, they're, I mean, it's like, it's like you're looking at a dinosaur. Does it happen... Uh, they're pretty predictable. Pretty up there. predictable. Yeah, oh, they're cool. they're there for sure. Uh, sometimes they're just on the wrong side of a river, uh, of the Sag River or something. You just can't necessarily get to them. Recent years, they've been doing a lot of construction in that phase, in that stretch right before Prudhoe Bay. So maybe they're in a stretch. You know, they might be close to the road, but it's they're flagging twenty miles, and you're behind a pilot car, and you can't you can't stop and get out. So they're there. I'm not so sure that Nome wouldn't be the better place to go and spend time with muskox. I would love to go up there in early June when they're having the babies and, and, and catch, and I haven't done that. I haven't been to Nome. I haven't either. You haven't? Have you been to Nome? I want to go to see the end of the Iditarod one of these years. Right. Uh, just to have that experience. Right. It's such a tradition there. Oh. And, and, I, and the books that I've read uh, on uh, mushers that have done the Iditarod, I mean, just yeah. amazing. Amazing. So I, I, w- I would love to see Nome. I would love to see it then, and, and what you're describing sounds super appealing, too. Well, I think in June, it's also really good for snowy owls. Snowy owls, I think a lot of birds, uh, yeah. of course, and Nome, Nome or Prudhoe Bay, the, the birding is fantastic. You know, and you, you mentioned can, a birding festival earlier. Is that in Cordova? Cordova, yeah. Another amazing, if you guys, either either of you been there I for that? I haven't. Another amazing wildlife spectacle. And and it's a little bit tricky because the, you know, the arrival varies from year to year, and then the quantity of birds varies year to year. You know, you need some some favorable say maybe north winds that kind of so the animals the birds stock up so to speak they don't want to fight the wind so it just depends the conditions are right you can get tens and tens of thousands of western sandpipers you know and they and then when they fly in these giant flocks and the way that you know when they change directions that uh for video it's just amazing it's really a cool experience it's just one of those again you could go there a couple years in a row, and I've gone many years, and, and, and not get, you know, I mean, you might see a flock of 10,000, you know, here and there, which is still cool, but to get the really memorable experience, you might have to put your time in a little bit, like right. so much wildlife. But well, that Cordova in early May is, is, is awfully special as well. And then there's always the chance for everything else, too, the That's whales, right. the otters. The, the otters, for sure. Everything. And, and the scenery and stuff. But muskox are just, you really feel like you've just been dropped back in time. When you look at that. That's that's one of the reasons I want to have that experience, or I hope yeah. to have it. 
Just to feel that. Yeah. I mean, it's prehistoric. The other animal that I'm kind of new to is a Gila monster, and we get those on our property in Arizona. (laughs) And same thing. It's like, this is is like a a, a tiny dinosaur. Literally looks like a dinosaur, (laughs) right? And they're poisonous. And they're poisonous. They're they're really, yeah, they're nasty animals if they bite you. Yeah. But so cool to watch. How how tolerant are they as as far as are they? They're fairly tolerant. So as long as you don't step on them kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, I think they're very, yeah. I think... They're not aggressive. It's kind of like rattlesnakes. I remember having a park ranger tell me once. I mean, I've read this too. Most rattlesnake bites are... Twenty-something-year-old males and alcohol is involved, and you know, yeah, somebody's picking it up, throwing it at somebody. Yeah, you step on them. Yeah, you know, they're not going to hunt you down. I've walked right up to Gila monsters within ten feet or so. The problem is they start to walk away from you. The problem it's just kind of like a porcupine or something. It's just hard to get the front on front end shot. They're not being aggressive or anything. They just keep turning away from you and turning away from you and. You know, but uh, but I think they can move really fast if you were to reach down and pick it up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? no, that's not necessary. Y- you know, Thank you. Exactly. I, I would, I'd like to photograph one or y- see one. Yeah, in 10 and, feet. Well, with a telephoto, 20 feet's fine. 20 feet's fine. Yeah, exactly sure, right. right. Exactly. Yeah. So he'll get five feet away from a monster 80-inch bull right. moose. <laughs> if he wants, <laughs> wants 20 feet on a, on a lizard. lizard. And he's like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Five, five feet might be a bit of a Well, yeah, five feet is pretty. It's a big stretch. I had to make a point. I know I could probably lay down in their antlers, but I'm not sure. I want to actually physically test that. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to touch on yeah. was just something that I appreciate more and more about Alaska and, you know, the for people who live here and accessing this incredible wilderness is the ability to fly places. And mm-hmm. The okay. roads are impressive here. They're well-maintained from what I've seen all my traveling. Mm-hmm. The pavement's great. It's easy to drive and travel for people who want to explore this. But really, to access wilderness, you hop in a float plane or on a plane with the big tires and you land on a beach somewhere and camp for a few days. And or a boat. Or a boat. Uh, yes, a boat, exactly. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh-huh. Now, before we started talking, when we arrived here on, on the podcast, we were talking earlier and you were talking about flying around and some of the experiences you had. And there was one that just struck me that I was, <laughs> and, and I don't want to scare people because right. there's so many planes up here and, and so many great pilots. And clearly if there's anywhere you need to be a skilled pilot, it's Alaska right. with these mountains and updrafts and downdrafts. Um, and the weight issues with these small planes and being very cognizant of that for the pilots and, and respecting that as a, as a, as a customer as well. But you were telling a story or maybe oh, yeah. maybe even another one that really was <laughs> I was just dialed right in it was it was uh, amazing to hear yeah. so you were flying in a beaver and something happened and yeah. everything turned out okay but yeah it's one of those stories I guess since I'm sitting here telling it you kind of know it has a happy ending right, right. right. <laughs> but uh, I had a couple with the same pilot and I'll leave his name out but he's a he was a fantastic pilot I'd fly to him anywhere anytime. Uh, and he was a very young pilot, but he'd been flying his whole life. But we were flying down. It was during a bear trip. And I usually don't tell these stories even after the trip for the same reasons you said. But uh, it's kind of funny because I had uh, – so the whole group was in the in the Beaver. And I had uh, – one of the members was a, Mer- a retired American airline pilot. So I'm like, why don't you jump in the co-pilot seat? It seems like the, the smart thing to do. And we're flying down. It was in a float plane. Uh, flying down to Lake Clark National Park, and we're cruising along good altitude. Everyone's looking at the scenery. It's a beautiful day, and all of a sudden, the engine dies, which is kind of like an oh-no moment. Nobody I'd really s- panicked. I'd say, or something even more. I know, okay. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but we're all kind of, everyone was ner- certainly nervous, and we're all, I'm looking at the, my 
pilot friend, and the, I'm, I'm watching both pilots, you know, and and he starts to try to restart it. I find out later what happened is he hadn't switched fuel tanks and it just ran out of fuel. But the Beaver, the Dilhavian Beaver, is an old plane, you know, and it's as I know now, it's hard to start apparently. And so it was. Uh, we're sitting there in silence, and it's bum 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 bum. <laughs> you know, and it's Each like, time your heart must sink a little yeah, bit. Yeah, exactly. Like, and we're kind of getting <laughs> a little closer to the ground. It's like, how many times can we do this? And uh, finally it restarted. And it was kind of a funny takeaway on the story. When we got all done, he gets it started, and the pilot explains to us what happened. And he looks at the, the co-pilot, the American, the retired American airline pilot, and he goes, you probably had that happen a few a time or two in your day. And he looks back at him and shakes his head and goes, no. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and it's the following year, it's kind of interesting. The same same pilot, uh, <laughs> also in a beaver. It might have been in a separate beaver, but we take off, and uh, we're, we're flying over Cook Inlet. We just left uh, uh, Anchorage Airport, and we're, and we're cruising along, and all of a sudden, the engine just starts sounding. It just it went from, you know, it just start, starts sounding really bad. And again, the pilot immediately, he calls to air traffic control. He says, I need, a, I need to immediately return back to the airport. And they said, is this an emergency? And we all kind of leaned forward, you know, <laughs> and he goes, precautionary, is all he said. And he kept going across the inlet. You know, in hindsight, I understand all this. He crossed the inlet and then started flying in circles, just getting higher and higher and higher. So that basically when he tried to cross back over the ocean, he would have enough glide space like that he could make it back to the airport. But what was interesting is how close we were monitored by air traffic control. They never took their eyes off of us and were right next to, you know, the Anchorage International Airport. So they were holding up. You could hear Alaska airline pilots. They basically stopped all air traffic until we could get in. And you hear these other pilots saying, hey, how's that beaver? Where is it at? And they're like, oh, he's he's still climbing. You know, give him a few minutes. And then the instant our wheels touch down, you hear air traffic control say, oh, wheels down, go ahead, Alaska Airlines, you can take off. And, you know, and everything. It was a fascinating experience since we survived, you know, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it could have gone the other way, I suppose. But <laughs> turned out the engine had just been rebuilt and it threw a valve or something like that. So it, uh, those are very reliable engines, even by throwing a valve. It's still, they're famous planes. But uh, anyway. <clears throat> and their their maintenance is in, impeccable. Right. I mean, they have to have so many hours and they right. have to do so many things. Break they have down, to replace, rebuild replace the motor, yeah. the engine, yeah. every, what, three years, I think. So. This is not meant to scare people because right. we've all flown a lot, and especially you up here, Ron, and, and obviously it's worked out for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's right. funny because I do these bear trips, and we're really close to these bears, and Michael's been there. It's a magical place. And uh, they may nurse. They may do all these things feet away, and people are always saying, you be careful, or you're crazy, or something like that. And I, and I kind of chuckle. This drive from Seward to Anchorage is probably, statistically speaking, far more dangerous than anything I'm doing next to those bears or even in a plane. You know, it's interesting how— I was unaware of that. We have to do that again. You do. <laughs> Be safe. <laughs> it's funny how fear is so irrational. Right. You know, right. and it totally uh, is. you try to rationalize it. And, uh, okay, but that's a good subject because on this podcast, you know, it's about adventure, right? Right. What would any of us have for these experiences if we, if we were ruled by fear? Right. Yep. You live this life, live oh, it to the fullest. Isn't that true? Don't be reckless, but really be adventurous. That's right. Yeah. And I think that people are like, you're crazy getting close to bears. And I think you're crazy not getting close to bears. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, you could stay home and die of a heart attack. I would much rather, I don't yeah. want to die, but if I is, if I do, I'd, 
I mean, yeah. I've lived such an amazing life, and it happens mm. next to a bear or whatever, a fall, or I'm at least you. I'm living. Yeah, I'm I know you. both you guys are. Yeah, the stories, that, the experiences that you've had, uh-huh. and right? You just, guys too. Just by being courageous that way and adventurous. Yeah. And, and it, it's, this life is worth worth living that way. Get outdoors. That's right. Yeah. And photography is a means for our adventure, but uh, yeah. it's really the adventure that we love at the end of the day. Yeah. You know, the pictures mean so much to us, and we have memories, these highlights, these snaps or these videos. But, you know, when I sit down and reflect... I, it's not the picture that I visualize. It was that that moment, though, that hour shared with that animal, uh-huh. reliving that. Yes. Right? So you don't have to come away with a professional quality picture. You just have to go have the adventure. That's right. First and foremost. I think it's healthy to be uncomfortable from time to time, from day to day. Or I saw a quote on a T-shirt just, just last night. I, I thought it was a great quote. It said, get comfortable being uncomfortable. Right. You know, and that's yep. so true. You know, get get close to that edge or you know, a little get a little close to that, you know, just test your push yourself a little bit. Yeah. yeah, don't be stupid, don't be dangerous, but but live, you know. Yeah, I always figure you got to have butterflies. Yeah, yeah. You right. know, with every situation you can just be a little bit on the edge where uh-huh. it's not overwhelming, but uh-huh. just enough to keep you thinking. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah, 100%. Yep. Those are the best days you look back in your life if you if I said pick out your best 10 days, you know, aside from maybe getting married and having kids, but, you know, and, and you're going to think of those days you had extra butterflies. And, yep. You okay. know, I agree. Yeah. The adventures, agree. Uh, if, yeah, if it was fear, none of this would have happened. You know, there uh-huh. are days in caribou country where I would see caribou a mile away, but, you know, there was a grizzly off in another direction, uh-huh. but I'd still hike to go for those caribou and just avoid the bear and be smart about the bear and make sure if the bear was closer that it knew I was there. Uh-huh. But if I just stayed in the car and watched them, none of that would have happened. The bear right. went its way. I had hours with this caribou herd, you know? Right, right. That's highlight real stuff for my life. Yeah. Right? Yep. And right. none of it would have been done. And any random accidental thing can happen to us anywhere, right. you know? Um, well, and I think how many hours have you been for close to grizz or brown bears? Yeah, it's, it's countless hours, right? Countless hours, yeah. And how many times have you ever been in any situation where you felt uncomfortable? It's probably right. a time or two, but time or two. I've had a few times, and it's funny. I've where I, people always ask, "Have you been charged?" And it's like I haven't been charged, but I've had bears running at me full speed a few times. But usually because there's another bear chasing yeah, them. Yeah, another or bear right? chasing them. Or I remember one time we were on the on the bank of the river watching a bear watching the river waiting for salmon to come in, and one of uh, one of the guys I was with stepped in front of his camera and started splashing off his boots because he had mud on them. And, of course, the bear is totally in tune to that splashing sound as a salmon. And it leaps up and just starts charging full speed. You know, and we're just like, whoa, stop. You know, and, of course, once the bear realized what happened, it slammed on the brakes too. But, right. uh, you know, I've had a couple experiences like that where I really wasn't charged. I know on Lost Lake Trail back here, I love running on this. And we were, Janina and I were coming down the trail one time, and I heard a loud horn. As I kind of came around a corner, I realized quickly what happened. There was mountain bikers coming up the trail, saw a bear, a black bear, and rang this loud horn, which scared the bear to death, which is what it should do. And it took off running up the trail, of course, right at me, you know. So there's another one of those oh-no moments. And right. I just clapped my hands and raised my, you know, raised my hands above my head, and the bear slammed on the brakes and ran the other way. So there's moments like that that get your attention. But... You know, the, the the number of times that it happens, and so if it happens to you, I mean, but the number of times a bear really attacks and kills a person, I mean, it's not like it doesn't happen, but it's quite... Statistically. St- statistically, and especially if you're with a group of people. It, I don't think a bear's right. ever attacked a group of three or more people. And it, it, when it's happened, the people were spread out, and the bear only was aware of one. You know, so, I mean, if you're up close to a bear with a group of six people, for example, in the history of the world, a bear's never jumped up and 
attacked a person. Right. So, yeah, I mean, statistically speaking, there's always those outliers. You just don't want to be an outlier. Right, right. There you go. <laughs> just don't be an outlier. Get along, that could be another people. t-shirt. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and it seems like most of the problems in Alaska will occur in these urban areas where there's yes. just a lot more interaction between those bears. And those bears are not the same as the bears that are out in the backcountry. I mean, those bears are being real bears. and but these city bears have to kind of deal with city stuff and yeah. their stuff and finding food and they I just seem the to be a little bit more thing. on the edge. I wouldn't get close to bears around Seward like I do in Lake Clark. Exactly. Because some of these might have been shot at. Some of them fear humans. Even in Denali where the bears are hungry. I wouldn't get close to a bear in Denali like I do Lake Clark, you know. It's uh cuz they're hungry, they're more edgy or or around here they might have been shot at cuz they're in somebody's yard so they they fear humans. Where in Lake Clark they just were like a tree. It's almost frustrating. I find people are frustrated that the bears don't even look up at us. You know, there's a, it's, it's chew, eat, 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 eat. And that one second the bear looks up, it's click, 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 click. Cause it, they're not, we're like a tree to them, you know? Right. So they don't fear us whatsoever. We're, we're not a threat to them. So they're not a threat to us where in places where we are a threat to bears, I worry way more about the bears. Sure. You have yeah. to be aware of that difference. And in the Canadian Rockies, it's a lot like the Lake Clark description yeah. where they're just feeding, feeding and, and yeah. you know, they're not shot at there so they're used to people they don't care they don't look very often they just right. do their thing uh-huh. and there's no threatening exchange for the vast majority of the time which is neat to be watching a bear doing its thing without worrying about you know what i mean that's i think one that's of the, the most special thing about lake clark yeah because yeah. you do you get to just have that right there right and there. just watch any little facet of yeah cubs adults yeah. sub-adults yeah. males females it's just everything the whole bear yeah. world Close. bear behavior yeah yeah right? yeah and 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 you feel like you have zero impact. You might, I mean, obviously, probably we always have some impact, but you really just feel like they're just going about their day, whether we were twenty feet away or not. They yeah. pretty much be doing I think that the exact same, same thing, thing they would do. Yep. Uh-huh. It's uh, it's magic. It, it really is. is. It really is. Yeah. And that trip is already sold out for you next year. Yeah, it's sold out really fast. Which I'm. <laughs> it's I'm, probably sold out for <laughs> the next five years. Well, it's it's uh, well, I have a pretty good late wait list for two years out. So, and next year sold out right away. And I often wait till after the trip so people that are on the trip could sign up for next year because that happens a lot. And this year, I just so many people were asking about it and wanting to sign up. I'm like, why am I turning away business? So. It failed quick, and then I had the first group. Everyone wanted to come back, so they're saying they're all going to come back in 2020 as a reunion trip. So that's pretty. I mean, as I'm blessed in that regard to have that kind of a as a as a leader. I mean, you you're a phenomenal guy, oh, leader, and you're so well, personable. Thanks. So I can see why you're successful. But I mean, for somebody who gets into this from a photography point of view, uh-huh. that's a perfect scenario where they become friends and they want no. to do this again together down the road, have that experience. Right. It moved them so much. Right. And obviously, you teach them so much with the photography or just the bear behavior and just putting them in the right. Place. Just being in the right place is, a, is half of it, but it's, I feel like I'm cheating in a way. I'm looking forward to 2020 if everybody comes back because a reunion for me as well. I, you know, it's right. like it's uh, uh, very blessed. Good, good. Very, very blessed. And then two years in a row now, I've had people on that trip, and you probably guys have, but that have basically we've had this magical close up experience and a turnaround and where they're crying in tears of amazement. And that. That alone right there just made the whole thing worthwhile, you know, just to see somebody that moved and to know you maybe helped at least get them there, you know, and put them in that position that they they had this life-changing experience. I mean, that's just uh, that's just a fantastic reward. This is one totally. of the best. We had a recent podcast with a guide who, who 
as guided in three different bear destinations, uh-huh. uh, Lindsay Dewart, and and that was one of the things that she enjoyed most about it uh-huh. was the reaction of the people. Yeah. Just uh, some of them just dumbfounded about this amazing landscape, these amazing animals, what they take away from them, and their perspective. You know, obviously they're on this trip because they're already passionate about wildlife and conservation and, yeah. and these magnificent ecosystems. But when they leave, uh-huh. it's exponentially more, uh-huh. right? and uh-huh. they just want to get back, and just means it resonates so much. Uh huh. You think about it, and I'm like, you know, some of these people that are on my trips, they might have been in L.A. the day before, you know, fighting traffic to get to the airport. Now suddenly they're landing on a, on a beach in a small plane, and you're looking out the windows, there's bears in the meadow, you know, and we're loading up into an ATV, driving to the lodge, and we're probably bought, you know, and it, it's so foreign to them that it's like, it'd be like taking us and dropping us in New York City and walking away, you know what I mean? Would, Yo, totally, yeah. yeah. Danger, yeah. danger, I'd be waiting for the <laughs> bluff charge. I'd have two bear sprays out. <laughs> <laughs> so Ron, you have another trip coming up. I mean, this timing is is impeccable here. We arrived in Seward, and we've got this podcast going today. But we really hit this narrow window for you. What's happening? So I'm doing a. It's another one of my my photo tours. So, um, but it's one I do in Southeast Alaska. It's boat base where I charter this classic old, uh, perfectly restored yacht, uh, and basically repackage. You know, so and bring different photographers along with. So it has a photography slant. We don't spend a lot of time you know, fishing and doing other things, but it's it's wonderful platform. I mean, it's cheating in a way because it's so comfortable. You have a, a chef and they do the meals for you and all that kind of stuff. It's got covered patio areas, you know, walkways around the boat. So if you're in around whales, even if it's pouring rain, you're, you're still dry. And then there's some amazing bear viewing areas in southeast Alaska. Not a lot of people know that. It's like Pack Creek and then some of these other places. And this family I'm working with, they, they were one of the first companies people to start doing boat trips in southeast alaska back in the early 80s and so now it's his son who's kind of taken over the business so they have this huge history there so we go to some of these really neat bear areas and what's kind of fun is it's very different than lake clark or 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 or, uh katmai coast you see those pictures and it's like you 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 know i can tell them right away it's like ah that's you know that recognize that meadow down there you get some of these uh, rainforest, waterfall, just very unique backgrounds, maybe walking along the coast. So I like it because it's a very different type of bear viewing. So people that have done my bear trip up here, a lot of times they like to do that down there. But then it's not just bears. You throw in bubble net feeding humpback whales, which is one of those. I talked about the shorebirds. I talked about some of these great wildlife spectacles. Seeing bubble net feeding humpbacks is just it's amazing because how did they figure that out? How do they teach each other? How do they communicate? How do they decide who goes down and does the bubbles? And for those that don't know, one of the whales at least starts blowing a big series of bubbles and swims in a circle upward, and it concentrates the herring or the bait fish. And then the other whales in unison will all come up underneath and with their mouths open and, and gobble up all this fish. So it's amazing to see. And, you know, every now and then uh, uh, you'll see a net, like, forming fairly close to the be- the boat. You'll see the circle of bubbles. And it's just like, wow, that's it right there. And then, you, sure enough, you see the fish and then the, the mouths. And, uh, so they've been that close that you've seen the bait fish? On a couple occasions. And, ah. You know, and it's not uncommon for the mouth to be open and seeing bait fish leaping out. You've right. probably seen mm-hmm. pictures of that. But sometimes you just see the, you see the whole thing. And it's just like, you know, get your camera ready and right where to point. Even for video, it's fantastic because you got – Rarely do you get a, a heads up moment for right. an amazing. If you could thing. be that close, I think you could pull video off because you could handhold it. With, but, yeah. but when they're far out, it's like oh, there's no way 
because that boat's moving, the water's moving, right. and you're moving, or the whales so are moving. To get and close like, proximity, yeah, no just ah, no get chance. lucky. Yeah, but, I've tried to do a little bit of video. I'm nothing like Michael, but it's like, oh, it's impossible. You don't know where they're going to come. And then, they're, then they're there, and it's too late. By the time you focus and everything, they're going back down, you know. It's, yep. <laughs> so we were here a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, well, you, maybe yeah. three weeks ago. Yeah. Barrett, the, mm-hmm. the bear guide that yep. we go with to Lake Clark, mm-hmm. he called me and said, hey, let's do – he wanted some otter pictures. Right. So we chartered a boat out of Seward. Okay. Just for us for the day. Right. And he's like, we're going to go find some otters, and uh-huh. hopefully we can find a raft of otters, right. which isn't, there's right. not a bunch of rafts around here. Yeah, not, not like, like Cordova or something. Or Kodiak or yeah, wherever. Uh-huh. But we're like, yeah, let's do it. <clears throat> so we were heading down there, uh-huh. and on our way to find the otters, we find bubble net feeding humpbacks. Uh-huh. I had not done any research. I had uh-huh. no clue what we were about to see uh-huh. i'd i'd seen it uh-huh. you know uh-huh. i knew what it was but i didn't know anything about it specifics so after seeing that well i went back home uh-huh. to anchorage and i get on the internet and i'm like bubble net feeding and bbc has a really uh-huh. cool little six minute piece and i was just blown i mean uh-huh. just the rarity of it right so right. that's what i wanted to get into yeah when you go on your trips well, how long are these trips uh, like five week, days week ten long. days week long yeah so are you, you obviously can't guarantee that I behavior. I can't. So far, in the last three years in particular, I've been doing two trips a year. We've seen it at least two different groups of humpback whales on each trip bubble net feeding. But I know that I could have a trip where I didn't see it. And I think early on I had a couple trips. Now I, my itinerary has changed a little bit. I used to go catch a can to Juno, and it didn't give us quite as much time in the prime uh, humpback waters. Now that I've gone to more of a Juno Juno itinerary, it gives us a little more time in Frederick Sound and Chatham Strait, where you typically find that activity. So since I've been doing that, I've we're batting a hundred. Awesome. But I hate to. But, you but never, I can't promise yeah, you that. Can't every promise trip, that. No. In fact, every trip going into it, there's a few things I hope to see. I hope to see a breaching whale, and I hope to see bubble net feeding. And I'm always a little bit. A little bit nervous, you know. I'm like, okay, come on, and I always breathe a big sigh of relief once when we, it happens. When it does happen, like, yeah. okay, good. Now, if it happens again, it's just bonus time, you know. Right. So that's true. With a lot of these tours, I probably wear my heart a little too close to the sleeve or whatever it is. But, but that's uh, what makes you good. Well, I mean, and that, I mean, people people understand that, and they yeah. they feel that. They just know how passionate you are about yeah. it. Oh, so, thanks. So it's, when yeah. they do that, yeah. One thing they said in this BBC thing that I watched. Mm-hmm. They can do it up to like 20 hours straight. Right. So do, when you guys get on that, do you just pretty much got to stay with them? We often do, you know, or we'll, or we'll give them a break, you know, so we're not, right. you know, so you're not, but there's times that, and that's one beauty, beauty of being on a photocentric charter, like what I put together. It's like, you know, a lot of these, like even here in Seward, they see it quite a bit on these Kenai Fjords tours, but they, they got a schedule to keep. Right. You know? They got to like, keep going. Yeah. It's 10 minutes. It's like, we got to see Puffin. We got to see Kevin Glacier. We got to go, you know, right. we're here. We can just hang out, you right. know, and just sit and watch. And gosh, one, uh, one time is what, one of the first times I used this particular boat I've been using, we were in Frederick Sound. It was late in the day and it was, it was starting to, the sky was turning pink and we got around these humpback whales. They were all around the boat. This full moon was coming up. You know, and we just shut off the engines. It just stayed there for hours. It was just magic. Even the staff, the crew, the captain, they weren't, they're not photographers, but they were just mesmerized. And it's just, that's the beauty of a trip like that is you could just be like, hey, this is amazing. I know we were hoping to go to that cove tonight, but 
we're, we're not leaving this. This is, you know, we're never leaving this until it gets dark, you know. And That's so, the cool thing about what you do. That's yeah. the cool thing about those kind of trips is if it's good, you stay. You just stay. Yeah, exactly. Well, it, People will be like, and our, and this, I did one in the spring that included Glacier Bay, and it's funny because I, I almost hated the answer to the question. People ask, what are we going to do today? Because the captain and I would just bounce all these different ideas off, and they always would change hour to hour because we saw something cool or heard a report from another boat or, you know, or saw some light or weather and so it's it's fun that way because you can be constantly adapting it'd just be like if i happen to have my own yacht you know and, and this is what i'd be doing it's it, it's kind of so that's what that's my question my next question is you do this all the time and you charter these boats do you ever find yourself saying i should just get a boat and live on it all summer yeah you know and we used to have a boat before i became full-time photographer it's funny back then i had the money for a boat but not the time you know <laughs> we would go off to work or whenever we could now i had the time but not maybe not necessarily the money although you know we've we've almost bought a boat a couple of different times even in recent years now i spend enough time on a boat that that it satiates that need yeah it satisfies that need yeah so i'm kind of like janine might uh disagree but i'm kind of like uh it's nice just to be home in the office a little bit. But, you know, the beauty of a boat here, and I have a friend that I've done quite a bit of trips with who's not who has a boat. Most of my friends with boats, they all want to fish, 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 fish. And they're not right. But I have a friend that really enjoys watching the whales, and so I've gone out with him a number of times, like in the evening and, and had some pretty cool experiences. So that would be the nice thing about a boat is you could go out at 10 o'clock at night right. and come Whenever. back at 2 and, you know, and just be out there for And if you listen to a marine radio, you right. can hear these other boats saying, oh, yeah, well, we just, what do they call them, uh, black and whites? Yeah, you're right. Or wide bodies. Wide bodies. <laughs> yeah. And you immediately code. know. Big yeah. fins. Code yeah. names. Big yeah. Fins. yeah. And the what neat thing about Seward is that the tour boat companies, unlike say in Hawaii, the tour co- boat companies all cooperate here. They all share sightings. They all even orchestrate them. So you may not know. You might be sitting on a on a boat motoring along. Little do you know the captain's just buying some time because in five minutes you're going to go around and get on these humpbacks. Um, but what's interesting is that the bubble net feeding started in southeast Alaska, and then it was a number of years ago that that a group of them started feeding and it was showing up. I think in mid July outside of uh, Resurrection Bay here. So it's the first time it had been seen outside of Southeast Alaska. And now they seem to come around every year. And then we had those that were doing that kind of combo bubble net lunch feeding in the spring here. And that's the second spring in a row that has happened right outside of Seward here. You could, people were taking pictures right from shore that were incredible photos from the, from the campground here. And I think one thing I saw in that BBC thing is they said it's a learned behavior. It's not something that they yeah. typically do, right? Right. I don't, they don't do it in Antarctica. Or you don't, I don't, I've never seen it in other places, and I haven't heard of it in other places. I've heard it's only in southeast and now southeast and south central. Man, that's it's, awesome. It's, it's, it's really awesome. It's, you know, and I've had, a, I've had the pleasure of, especially in my Arizona property, but even in the Brooks Range, in recent years I've had the pleasure of spending some extra time with biologists, who, you know, full-time biologists or, or college professors as well. And, I, and I've kind of said the same thing, and I've always kind of agreed. It'd be interesting to hear your thoughts. But I think in a way, the, it's interesting. The more we understand about wildlife, the less we seem to know. And I, in a way, I think that's kind of kind of neat you know it keeps coming up it keeps yeah it's like uh talking to a researcher who's doing a hair study in the brooks range and i'm like well why do they do this crap what is your take because he must know you know more than anyone else you know and he's like you know really we we have no idea you know there's all these speculations you could read a textbook and they might say this and this uh plants change their you know their makeup and but but it's interesting it's kind of like the more you learn about wildlife the less we understand yep you know it's we interviewed a biologist what a couple of weeks ago a month ago and that was what I got out of that conversation. The technology is changing. Yeah. 
they got citizen science going right. on where you get a lot of people like us that can help out yeah. just as with sightings and things like that. Uh-huh. So you do. You find out, mm, yeah, the tools. maybe I don't know what that right. bear is doing. <laughs> GPS and tracking and Yeah, all the tools that. keep getting better, and so our perceptions keep improving, and, and uh, our ability to try and interpret this behavior, whatever it might right. be, uh-huh. just expands. I, I won't even say improves, but, right. you know, makes us aware that there's so much yet to learn. And the, and the levels, the intricacies and, and the relationships these different species have in these ecosystems, not just even with the humpbacks and the way they communicate uh-huh. and this behavior, the bubble net feeding, all these aspects, they all are, you know, warrant more study and research and, and uh, patience. Yeah. I thought it was fascinating before wolves were, I remember reading an article about Yellowstone before wolves were introduced and the speculation that's come to pass is that it was going to change the landscape the foliage and everything and i'm like how could a wolf you know affect where trees are growing and all that but it has and it's and and we can't begin to understand how everything's interrelated you know it's it's kind of uh egotistical to think we could even begin to understand you know because it's like i wish we could sorry to cut you off but globally the world would be a much better place if we could understand that and cared about it as as a whole Individually, we do. Yeah. Sorry, please continue. No, no. I, I couldn't yeah. resist. Cared about it for it. sure, but I kind of think that's neat that we don't fully understand. Sure. Uh, yeah. yeah. But to care about it, I wish we cared about it uh, way more. As a society. As, a, as, as a, you as know, a as, a, as a human species that is overpopulating this planet, that we cared to preserve it more. Right. Right. For a multitude of reasons. Right. And this behavior and, and just the, the magnificence of this planet, the wildlife from the smallest species to the whales. You look at the uh, uh-huh. seahorses uh-huh. or cuttlefish uh-huh. in the ocean to whales to grizzly bears, all the... Ah, don't and get, then don't just get me look going. at, uh, you know, this. there was another article recently about Yellowstone about this, the, the, the I think it was rainbow trout that got introduced into the lake and how that's drastic. That's going to wipe out some bird, bird species now because... Yeah, because yeah, they've overpowered the the brown trout that was native to Yellowstone, and they're more aggressive. And the brown trout tended to be in the shallow waters where the eagles and stuff could eat them. And then the carcass was, you know, now all that's changed. And you know, it's we have no idea what you know so how complicated nature is. And that's one cool thing about Alaska is you can get away from a lot of that in that uh-huh. human influence. If you're willing to get in the backcountry, you really see it like. It, like you're supposed to see it. Sometimes the backcountry starts 20 yards. That's right. That's what is amazing about it. That's what I love. You get 20 yards in and you're gone. Yeah. And you yeah. can just keep going in, in every direction, but where you came from is wild. Yeah. Yeah. And wilderness. And Seward it's Highway right there. between here and Anchorage, you could stop at any pullout or any, anywhere and start walking in perpendicular to the road. You're not going to see a person. You don't know. You, who knows what you might see? But it's probably not going to be a person. Or house, you know? So you've probably done, and this is a little off topic, but yeah. you've probably done that drive a bajillion times. Yeah, yeah. What's the coolest thing you've seen on that? Uh, that's a good question. One time, and this was a cool, uh, we were driving up uh, just past the Y going towards Anchorage, and a lynx ran across the road, which is an awesome animal to right. see ever. Right. We kind of pulled over and kind of pondered it, and we're like, huh, I wonder, that was neat. And it's like, there's a pullout kind of near there and a little little dirt, old dirt road. I'm like, let's just go back and see you know, let's, let's just go back. What the heck? You know, and I've learned now, if I ever see a lynx, so I always follow it because they don't. You know, a lot of animals will run. You know, they, they get scared of humans and they run. Lynx don't. They They're run curious. a short distance and then hide. You know, they right. rely. Anyway, so we pulled pulled off in this little walkway or little, I mean, this little pullout. I grabbed my camera and a tripod. I think I had like a, this was a long time ago. I might have even had like a 75-300 or first 100 or 400. Anyway, I have the camera. And we're walking down this little dirt road, this path. We don't, s- I think then we finally saw the lynx in, a, in, a, in its 
two other smaller links way down the dirt road. And we're like, wow, that's fantastic. So we walk down the dirt road, and I'm all excited. I hadn't had a lip. Up until then, I didn't have a lynx photo. In fact, it was one of my first lynx sightings. And uh, we walk down this dirt road for a bit, and then all of a sudden, there's this loud commotion to my left. We, we both jump, thinking it might have even been a bear. And the snowshoe hare comes flying out of the woods, runs right between Janine and I, and this lynx is on its tail and stops, like, right on the edge of this little road. I mean, it's 10 feet from me. I, um, I was proud of myself because I quickly dropped my camp tripod down and I composed and it was too close to focus ah. and it sat there and sat there and my my lens is mm, 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 mm. <laughs> <laughs> I was probably pushed that shutter button right right through the top of the camera I'm like click 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 but uh, that was a cool experience because we because it was it was I forget it was right before that or right after that we ended up seeing the mom and the two young ones it was it was late spring and that was so that was a pretty magical that was that was pretty magical. That's such a beautiful drive, and, uh, and a lot of the best experiences have just been seeing amazing light. I mean, yesterday I drove it. I saw a bear at uh, just quick glance. I saw a bear at uh, at Bird Creek at that. Yep, you can see it up. Th and then I saw a moose uh, mile ten or t mile twelve, where there's that little boardwalk in that little pond. I was driving by. I'm like, I did a double take. There's a there's a moose in that pond. I never. It looks like the perfect place for moose, and there's never moose in it. I'm like, oh my gosh, there was a moose in there yesterday. I saw a moose there a couple weeks ago. Oh, you did? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But way on the other side of the. It, it was way on the other side of the pond. <coughs> Not right in with all the lily pads. Nope. It was on the backside. Oh yeah, that's yeah. right. So it wasn't necessarily a good yeah. photo, but still cool. Yeah, it's still you know? cool to yeah. see. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a that's a beautiful drive. Oh, it beautiful is beautiful drive it for is. sure. And Mark didn't. This is the first time he's been down south. Yeah, I didn't realize you hadn't been to Seward. Oh, yeah. just down to the arm, turning I'm, it Oh, now the mountains are out. I've been enjoying yeah, okay. the view, yeah. <laughs> Had my back to the window. The clouds yeah. have been lifting, the blue sky, and I can see mountaintops that were are way above the tree line. Snow up there, beautiful. Yeah, yeah so hopefully you'll get to see some, because the fog this morning, was Wait. it was fog all the way. Oh, okay. So it's he didn't get to see much. Oh, it's been beautiful, beautiful drive on the way home. Yeah. Yep. You know, right here in the boat harbor, not to give away too many secrets, I suppose, but that's, that's as good a place as anywhere, anywhere to photograph otters. We said that um, on one podcast, and that's yeah, one did. thing I told Mark. I said, you know, guarantee, guarantee yeah. well, I yeah. can't guarantee, but. Yeah. He said if I good. got in there with my underwater GoPro and swam around the docks, <laughs> that I'd see a sea otter. <laughs> He'd guarantee it then. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Because they're quite habituated, too. Totally. Yeah, and yeah, they're, and more plentiful. And it's not totally uncommon to see land otters down there, too. I heard that. Yeah, they used to have a den underneath one of the boardwalks there, and I haven't seen them this year. Someone, or, when we were here <laughs> that last trip, uh -huh. someone saw it. Oh, really? A, okay. A, a river otter that was e eating a... Yeah, river otter, yeah. I don't know. A, a fish. Uh, what was it? Clam? Mollusk? No. Something on the barnacle on the, on the, on the post? No, it wouldn't have gone for that. Like a little flounder? Sea fish. A sea oh, urchin. Oh, okay, really? okay. Okay. And sometimes you'll see them on that little lagoon across the street. I but tried. yeah, when you see an otter, it's like a lot of times I just automatically just say, oh, sea otter. But it's like, oh, no. It's, it's, you can see Where you see those two species together, I've never heard anywhere else. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. River and, and sea otter. And I didn't otter. even realize that you, river otters would go into the, were an ocean. Into the ocean. Yeah, would water. go into the ocean. But you see them right. around, around there. I've seen them right along the front here. Uh, rare, but I've seen and them. And we'll see a lot of uh, river otter tracks out of Lake Clark. Yes. Yes. This year, the last yep. couple of years especially. Yep. Yep. In fact, we saw some this year. I saw one with a flounder. Did you? Yeah. Had to quit the battle. <laughs> well, thanks, Ron. Yeah. And, and I hope we have the opportunity to visit Arizona. Please and I do. would I would love to do another podcast because it would be such a different environment yeah, and yeah. would just spark different conversations about the wildlife that you have on your property there and what's that would available. Be fun. So when are you there generally? From like 
November? Yeah, so into November this year, we're still working that out a little bit. Into November this year, and that probably would be fairly normal because it's funny. It's such a Southwest is beautiful in October. I could see us doing other travels. And then right now, we're leaving in the early May, first week of May. May is a tough one. So we're there January, February, March, April for sure. Uh, May, you start to get a lot of migrating birds. The saguaros are in bloom. Um, so a lot, there's a lot of interest in May. The problem with this migrating birds is they're, you know, they're here one day and gone the next. So mm-hmm. You look out and it's like, wow, what is that? It's a tanager or indigo bunting or something. So it's like, but, but it might not be there you know, an hour later. It might be gone. So it could be hit and miss. It could be hot. And we're in an RV. So it's not uncommon to be getting close to 100. And, and gnats start to become a problem. So, oh. And as you well know, Alaska is beautiful in May. So it's kind of like there's – so we don't know going forward. If a lot of people are interested in May, I could see us being down there in May. Uh, right now, we probably won't be. But it's a cool pl- – you, know, you guys, it would be fun to do a podcast there. It would be fun to have yeah. you guys there. And yeah. I'd like to do a, a variety of different – and I'll have other workshops. You know, Other people may bring photographers there. People can come on their own. I'm going to do some workshops too, and I could do some fun stuff like – camera trapping where we could set up a camera trap at the water hole and I could teach that whole thing and and then the next morning see what we you know we're going to get a javelina and a skunk or something for sure maybe we get something rare you know so I could do stuff night skies star trails birds you know I could do a lot of landscapes so I'm kind of excited I'm just I don't even have any of this on the website we're just still okay. kind of developing it but I think there's a a lot of potential you well, know? even the storms yeah. that cruise through there yeah especially amazing. in the summer and again I don't want to be out of Alaska electrical storms but those <laughs> those Monsoon storms. I would love to see that sometime if I could pull myself out of Alaska in yeah, August. For I don't blame you. I would stay here. <laughs> I wouldn't leave Alaska. But uh, yeah, those. But the skill sets that come along with learning how to do the camera traps are useful. People can apply that anywhere, right? That's so right. They can go back and set up a camera trap where they live in Alberta and try to get that mountain lion, or that's right. Have fun with that. So it'd be new yeah. territory, fun to explore down there. Yeah, and some of it's been fun. It's new to me, you know, and, and the wildlife, the wildflowers. To me, it's been invigorating because I'm learning all this new stuff. Mm-hmm. I've spent a lot of time in the Southwest over the years traveling, usually grabbing landscapes and some stuff. So it's fun to just really delve into, into one little spot and really work it and really learn it and really know it. That's been kind of uh, – it's been stimulating. So it's will you a, give us a few teasers, a few teaser images that we can put in the show notes on course. the website yeah, so course. people can see what you're talking about and the excitement behind that and, yeah, and sure. the passion behind it and, sure. and why you feel this way? So they can go, our listeners, please go to wildandexposed.com and you can see the podcast there and the show notes below and it's on the WE podcast page of the website. So we encourage you to do that, to follow along with, uh, with Ron's content there. There'll be some links as well. Thank you. Ron, Thank for the you. time today, no, it's, it's been, been fun having these, yeah. hearing yeah. these stories, and I, I'm sure, and I hope our listeners have enjoyed it as much as Michael and I. And we I hope do. to have you on again. And Arizona, it's a perfect venue. Let's figure that out for the winter time. Yeah. Oh yeah, there's nothing better than Southern right. Arizona in right. yeah. December, January, <laughs> February. February. Yeah, right. Let's make it happen. So b- before we go, yeah. say your uh, Instagram address one more so time. So it's just at uh, Niebruggy, my last name, N I E B R U G G E. Okay, perfect. Yeah, so. Yeah, no, it's been fun. I enjoyed it. I, we probably would have had much the same conversations without the microphone. Right. So. Well, and that's what we figured in doing this podcast. Uh-huh. You know, so much of what we talk about amongst ourselves, uh-huh. I think, would be huge interest to uh-huh. our listeners. So hopefully, they find it. I think, yeah, interesting I hope so too. Yeah. yeah, it's very casual. I enjoy that, and it's like taking people along and sharing some of these highlight adventures, uh-huh. as well as how we do some of this. Right. Mm-hmm. So yep. a lot of that's been put on the table today, and I thank you for that. Yeah. yeah. For sharing that. Yeah. And My so pleasure. And uh, for our listeners. Uh, no matter what platform you're listening to us on, 
Uh, please show us the love. Give us the thumbs up or the five-star rating. It allows us to continue to do what we love to do and to bring you this content on a regular basis. And thank you for tuning in. Stay tuned for future podcasts and get outdoors and enjoy the wilderness. Cheers.